Today we are going to be reading verses 1 through 9. Verses 1 through 9. This is the opening oracle for the prophecy of the book of Isaiah. Let's read it together. This is what it says. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again? As you continue in your rebellion, the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in the cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the sin and of the chaos of our own depravity, You are a God that steps in. You are a God that intervenes. And this is what the Gospel is all about. And so we're grateful for the book of Isaiah. We're thankful to have it because it is a prophecy that is rich with Gospel truths. And so help us, O Lord, to understand the crisis that Israel is in and how that affects us even today and how that is relevant for us even today and what it means about your character, about your heart towards your people and about your faithfulness towards your holy covenant. We thank you that you are a covenant-keeping God. We thank you that you are faithful to your word and that your promises do not fail and that we can build our life on it, the rock of our salvation. And so now, O Lord, help us to see Your faithfulness in the midst of all of this drama that has befallen the children of Israel during this time. And help us to understand that You, the God of Israel, the Holy One, are still at work in the world and in our lives today. We thank You. We bless You. We look to You now. Help us For your sake, bless us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, the title of today's message is entitled, Isaiah's Antichrist Crisis. And I thought, well, if you read that along with me, then 
You might be puzzled at the title of that because you're thinking in your mind, well, I didn't see the name Christ or Jesus or Jesus Christ anywhere in the text. And so how can the pastor engage in such gross eisegesis right at the beginning of the sermon? And of course, it's not because the name Christ is mentioned here, but it's because of the crisis that is at hand. The crisis at hand in the book of Isaiah is a covenant crisis. And all covenant crises in the Old Testament have to do with Christ. God does not just have a nation for the sake of having a nation. God does not just have a people for the sake of having a people. In other words, the reason why we are in this present crisis is because if we don't get past chapter 1, we don't get past chapter 7. Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And so how is Israel going to go from the present crisis to an Emmanuel status? What does Emmanuel mean? Well, the Hebrew word Emmanuel literally means God with us. And that's what you find in Matthew chapter 1. Mary names Jesus God with us. Because He is God with us. He is the one who came and pitched a tent, tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as the only begotten of, of, the Father, of the Father, full of grace and truth. But we don't arrive at Emmanuel if we don't get past the present crisis. The, pre- the present crisis is such that Israel finds itself, ironically, estranged from God. It's also a covenant crisis because we are in covenant territory. Uh, Verse 2, the way it opens, and if you're curious more about verse 1, go back to last week's sermon there. I gave a little introduction, but after the opening uh, prescript to this prophecy, Isaiah says, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Now that language of heaven and earth is reminiscent of the actual constitution of the ancient nation. In other words, why does he invoke heaven and earth? Because this is what uh, commentators call a covenant lawsuit in the midst of a prophecy. It's a covenant lawsuit because when God invokes heaven and earth, we are entering into the courtroom of God, as it were. And so let me give you some text to explain that. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. This is at the forming of the nation. This is the official constitution of the nation. And when God made and founded the nation of Israel, this is what He said. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life in order that you may live and your descendants Again, Deuteronomy 32, verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. If heaven and earth was God's way of establishing the covenant with His people, it is thus these very witnesses that are invoked yet again at the time of prosecution when the covenant is being violated. 
And so, Psalm 50, verse 4, he says, He summons the heavens above and the earth, listen, to judge His people. What's this saying? In other words, what, you know, this is not just metaphorical or hyperbolic language. It is God's way of saying that this is a universal, sovereign, indisputable prosecution on behalf of God. It's like heaven and earth are the watchers of everything that happens and, ev- and then spans every realm and every nook and cranny of this universe and any other. It is God's way of saying that Judah has nowhere to go, nowhere to hide, no one to appeal to, no one to remove their guilt. And all their evil deeds have come out as evidence against their revolting against the Lord. And therefore, in this rebellion, the context here of God prosecuting the nations is one of estrangement, one of covenant and specifically of breaking the covenant bonnet it reveals to us what the covenant with god is all about look at verses two and three here O heavens O earth the lord speaks sons i have reared and brought up but they have revolted against me an ox knows its owner a donkey its master's manger but israel does not know my people does not do not understand why because The covenant is a bond of communion with God consisting of an intimate knowledge of God. That which none of the nations had. None of the nations understood this. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 147. You better understand that the chosen people were chosen from among all the peoples of the earth in order for God to disclose Himself to them in the bond of communion within the context of a covenant. That's what He does. And so we have psalms like this. Psalm 147, verse 19. He declares His words to Jacob. That's not the person Jacob. That's the nation now being called Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. Verse 20, he has not dealt thus with any nation. And as far and and as for his ordinances, they, i.e. the nations, they have not known them. Well, that sounds like if you're coming from a, a, a if you're coming from a natural mind, i.e. non-spiritual, i.e. unregenerate, well, you might look at that and say, well, that's extremely cruel of God to do that. That's, how, how does God discriminate, discriminate such that he chooses, he chooses only one people out of all the nations of the world? But that's not the way the psalmist thinks. How do you know that? Because look how the, the way that he ends it. Praise the Lord! He is magnifying the election of God's grace. He is not ashamed of it. Contrary to the majority of evangelical pulpits today, the psalmist exalts in election. He exalts in a sovereign God. He is not ashamed of a sovereign God. We're far from that. But you can understand the nature of this covenant bond by the filial dimensions. That's the, you know, father-son. Because God, you know, the Lord Yahweh says, sons that I have reared and brought up. Remember, Israel, Exodus 4.22, was to be God's son. Isaiah 46. These are the, these are the, the children that God gave birth to. 
He birthed them. He chose them. And He loves them. And He's entered into this relationship with them. A filial relationship. A special, intimate relationship with the knowledge of God. And so God says, but Israel does not know. Yisrael lo yada. You know I had to use some Hebrew. I love the Hebrew. I'm obsessed with the Hebrew language. Uh, I like it more than Greek. Uh, even though I don't know it like I know Greek, uh, Hebrew is beautiful. I just, I wish I could be transplanted out of America. Somebody just thrust me into Israel for five years just to leave me there. I'll go dwell with the rabbis in the tunnels or something for a few years. I really want to learn this language better. It's so majestic. Anyway, uh, I had to get that out. In other words, this is a true crime, given the fact that God has chosen the nation from all the peoples of the world and now these people do not even understand. The, the parallel prophet at this point is Hosea, who is prophesying just to the north of Isaiah in Israel and in Ephraim in the northern kingdom. You know what he says. Hosea 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, he calls the people lo-ami, not my people. This is God, again, bringing a covenant lawsuit against Israel such that their covenant treason has resulted in them being divorced by God. And why? Well, here's why. Because the chosen nation chooses sin. Look at verses four, uh, verse 4 here. He says, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. And so, in other words, the very essence of this covenant crisis is a moral and a spiritual problem. It's not simply that the nation has failed to meet up to its uh, covenant obligations. It, it, it has become corrupt with sin. The word corruption here in the Greek literally means to be soiled like a garment that's been soiled. It's useless. It's worthless at this point. And it makes sense, of course, because all moral corruption is a transgression against God's law, and Israel has become identified with that law. They are sinful people, a people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, and so we can see what's going on here. There is a total reversal of everything that Israel was intended to be. They were intended to be the chosen nation, but instead they've become a sinful nation. They were intended to be the, the, the people that know the Lord, and now they have become the people who are weighed down with iniquity. They are no longer children reared by God. Now they are the seed of evildoers and sons who act corruptly. Uh, in this chapter, chapter 1, look at verse 21, because later on in the prophecy of, of, of this book, we're going to see in great detail the sins of Israel. But here, in a close context, we see some of that sin. Verse 21 says, how the faithful city has become a harlot. Now, the language of spiritual uh, harlotry is very important in the prophets. Spiritual harlotry refers and ultimately amounts to idolatry. Idolatry. In other words, that the children of Israel have gone after other gods. It is the ultimate covenant transgression. It is, it is apostasy. And it's giving yourself over to, uh, to false idols. She who was full of justice. You see, and so God is saying there was a point in time on a general level where the children of Israel, where the city, where the nation was full to some 
you know, at, at some level of, of understanding, it was righteous. There was justice in the land. And yet, it's gone. Righteousness was once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your drink diluted with water. Uh, by the way, why, why, why does that, what does that mean, your drink diluted with water? Now remember, uh, to the prophets and the children of Israel, to have drink, to have wine, okay, undiluted, pure wine, strong drink, was a sign of national blessing. It was a sign of abundance. And so Jesus turns the water into wine as a symbol that the messianic fullness has arrived. That's what it was all about. And so the prophet is saying, look, everything is diminishing. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. In other words, the motives of every heart are false. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. In other words, Israel was to stand up and to defend these little ones in an act of pure and undefiled religion. But the nation has become totally corrupt. Isaiah begins to, to, to speak of these reversals where the nation becomes totally inverted. They are upside down and inside out. This is all a, a result of sin. Now, in the midst of this covenant lawsuit, Judah is made to understand that they are guilty not just because they have broken a rule here or there or broken a tradition or they've upset their parents. The lawsuit constitutes offending God directly. It's almost as if we don't really understand the the height and the gravity of Israel's offense until we understand who they have offended. They have offended, as it says here, the Holy One, of Israel. Look at the language. They have despised, they have abandoned, they have despised, and they have turned away from God. That's the death blow. That's the height of the treason. That's, that's what makes it so heinous in the eyes of God. You understand, a covenant is essentially a commitment to one another. How do we know that for certain? Because... A covenant is defined in the book of Malachi uh, within the context of, um, of a marriage covenant. And there we are to understand that a marriage covenant entails certain commitments that each party makes to one another. And so what Israel has done, in a sense, in committing spiritual harlotry, is they have failed to meet the commitments of the covenant. That's what it means by they have abandoned him, they have despised him, they have turned away from him, and in turning away from the Holy One of Israel, they have now found themselves ironically in the same position as the pagan nations that they were to be separate from. Basically, it's like what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Israel now, because of their sin, is afar off. They have become strangers to the covenant, strangers to the promises. They have become estranged from the promises of God. Think about that. The commonwealth of Israel that they were supposed to be, they no longer are. I mean, they are the commonwealth. And now God is saying they've turned away 
there afar off. And so now Israel is cast in the language of being dead in trespasses and sins. They have abandoned the Holy One of Israel. Uh, By the way, that phrase, the Holy One of Israel, uh, theologians, commentators, scholars suggest that this is a phrase that Isaiah probably coined himself. Uh, And so you find it throughout the book numerous times. But it basically is a two-edged sword. It not only magnifies their own treachery, the fact that they have forfeited their blessings, but it also intimates you are now accountable before the Holy One of Israel. And the Holy One of Israel doesn't mess around. You are now under the wrath and the indignation of a holy God. He was to be your proud possession. He was to be your prized possession. He was to be the very thing that distinguished you from everybody else, but you have traded Him in. To understand the gravity of how appalling this is in the eyes of God, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 2. This is what is at foot in all sin can be summed up in this way to understand the divine perspective. How does God think about sin? How does God look at sin? What is the nature of sin? Jeremiah's description is probably the best. Chapter uh, chapter 2 of Jeremiah, verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, That's one. The fountain of living waters to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I mean, John Piper built a 40-year ministry on that verse. Why? Because this verse is telling us in true Christian hedonistic form, That God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And we are most satisfied in Him when He is most glorified in us. But if we will not have it, then all we have left are the cesspools, the cisterns, the broken, shallow, superficial cisterns of sin in this world. Y'all know where I was this weekend. Many of you. I was at a gay pride event preaching in the midst of what I can only call Sodom and Gomorrah. I can't believe, you know this would make it to the pulpit today, I can't believe parents would take their kids to an event like that. It was, yeah, it was unbelievable. And yet, the message that I had for many of those people is you're settling for a lie. Uh, You're living for nothing. I mean, God is offering you honey and you want to eat sand. You know, I said, look, okay, I understand you're proud, you know, you're proud of being homosexual and all that. If I use the word gay, then Mike McNamara will get after me and say, you're violent. That's a perfectly good word. Don't use that. Anyway, so (laughs) be careful. I say, what happens when you get too old to have sex? Everybody laughs and scoffs and scorns. I said, no, 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 serious. 
When your body is so decrepit and you're laying in a hospital bed somewhere, in a retirement home, and your body is shot through some disease and you no longer have the ability to have any sort of sexual anything, what, you cease to be human? And so you get your humanity and your dignity with what you do with your sexual organs? What's wrong with you people? And isn't it amazing that they are exalting, they think that this is what makes them human, when in fact it doesn't. It just reveals the shallow, superficial, non-satisfying, temporal nature of their lifestyle. But it's not just them, it's everyone. It's all of us. It's anyone who would prefer sin to God. You know, it's such a, it's a careful balance because I find myself you know, sharing with these people, say, look, it's not that I'm saying homosexuality is the worst sin that has ever been in the face of the earth. It's not. I mean, you know, the Bible tells us that all manner of sin will be forgiven to man. The only sin that will not be forgiven to man is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. My position on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is that it is not to be committed today. Uh, so I'm in the minority. That's okay. I got John MacArthur on my side. So it's okay. He argues, and I think correctly, that the blasphemy of the Spirit was standing in the presence of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You see Him do a miracle by the power of the Holy Spirit in your presence. And you stand back and say, Satan. Satan did that. That is a clear evidence of your reprobate mind. And therefore, what I'm saying is that There's nothing that cannot be forgiven. But at the same time, that sin in particular does come with specific ramifications. And the Holy One of Israel reminds us, brothers and sisters, that God doesn't care where society goes, what becomes acceptable. I was just at Starbucks. And every employee in there is wearing a pride shirt. It's like, Man, I love Starbucks, but do I got to give up my macchiato? Because I don't want to support me. You know what I'm saying. But you can go down the line. The separation, be careful because then you can't drive a Ford or a Chevy or Ram. Or you can't, can't go to Walmart or anything. Because you know what these people are doing with their money? They're giving millions of dollars to LGBTQ, X, Y, and Z. Keep adding letters to those movements to destroy our culture. I'll come back to this in a moment because verse 9 talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, ironically. What happens as a result of Israel trading in God for these broken cisterns is that Israel undergoes the total devastation of sin. And as a matter of fact, Isaiah gives us two metaphors so that we understand how extensive how profound and how devastating the sin of Israel is and its consequences. He gives us a metaphor of a sick man and a sick land. A sick man and a sick land. A man, a wounded man, as it were, first, as a wounded man who is without remedy. Notice the way that Isaiah phrases this. Where will you be stricken again? That's a hotly debated 
Hebrew phrase because it can kind of go in different directions. But it basically what this is what this is designed to do is to show Israel the folly, the self-inflicted nature of sin and the folly of persisting in sin when all you're doing is just adding more misery to yourself. It's like it's like somebody that's been beat up beyond recognition and still wants to be beaten some more. The prophet is saying, where are you going to be stricken again? One commentator said, it's like when you have to whip a child. (laughs) He says, and you're trying to find somewhere to beat them that they haven't already been beat. (laughs) They're all red and bruised and (laughs) you just feel sorry for the little lad. It's like that, but million times worse. It's like, Israel, I've messed up your nation, your government, your land, your food, your commerce, your economy. Everything is gone because of your sin, and you're still pursuing more sin. It's like you think you'd get it by now. You think you'd come to the point, Israel, where enough is enough. I'm ready to repent now. And what is Israel saying? You won't repent. You just want more of the same. What a sick and vicious, miserable cycle that sin can lead you into. And therefore, what Isaiah says here is a spiritual crisis on a national scale that is systemic. It has affected the leadership, verse 10, verse 23, the religious people, chapter 27, the judges, the soldiers, chapter 3, down to the very common man in the street, chapter 2. Everyone is sick with sin. Sin has mutilated the people, but even though one would think that enough is enough, Israel is basically saying, look, even though you've been beaten beyond recognition, you still need to be beaten more. Wow. And this is often the case with our sin, is it not? And so, just as with Judah, which was the land of Canaan, this is a total deformity of what they were meant to to be. Isn't that so true about the Christian life? As a Christian, what you're meant to be is separate from sin. And when you give yourself to sin, what a deformed picture it paints. I mean, you were redeemed in order for you to be brought out of the tyranny of sin. And yet, when you fall back into sin, you are living a total contradiction to your nature. That's exactly Israel... Exactly what Israel was. As, you know, Israel is the land, the land of Canaan, the promised land. It was the type of the heavenly city of God. And now it has become a wasteland. Look at verse 7 and 8. The land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left a shelter in a vineyard like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. In other words, these words are meant to convey the notion of a total decreational act of God where everything good that God did in creating Israel and creating the world, giving it you know, flourishing and vegetation and abundance, all of that is being undone by Israel's sin. That's one of the things I taught Way back when I taught protology in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I taught that the days of creation are not just, uh, you know, are not just sort of giving us some highlights about how the world was made. You know, God made the world 
I mean, there is a zillion things you could have put in the creation account. There's just a few things that are kind of intimated there. Why? Because those features that are found in Genesis 1 will become important for the prophets later when God begins to undo the creation through the sin of his people, paving the way for a new creation that is going to be necessary after the people's sins. For example, look at Isaiah 34. I'm going to go there, Isaiah chapter 34. As you turn to Isaiah 34, this is, what, this is where the devastation comes from. It comes from God raising up enemies to Israel that will overthrow them. Enemy armies, Assyrians, the Babylonians. One commentator said this, This desolation is, accom- is accomplished on the orders of God. It is done by the rampaging armies of the nations, but also, listen now, but also by the relaxing of the ordered forms of creation. That's, I found that interesting when he said that. By relaxing the ordered forms of creation and society that hold back the chaotic forces. In other words, it's like God removing a certain measure of his common grace. So that even the environment is affected. The society is affected. Everything is affected because God has removed His hand of restraint and is now allowing things to run their depraved course. What a picture of the eschaton. What a picture of everything we've been studying in Thessalonians where God at one point is going to remove the restraint that now restrains today's society from divulging into utter anarchy Under Antichrist, Isaiah 34, verse 13, captures this. He says, thorns will will come up in its fortified towers. Now, understand what goes on here. In this theology of desolation, God is going to first use a wicked nation in order to punish his nation, and then God is going to punish the nation that he used. And so what happens is that this desolation uh, language uh, becomes universal. Everyone will be affected by the desolation of the judgment of God that will ultimately come at the day of the Lord. You see how it works now? And so Israel will be desolate, and then the people that caused Israel's desolation, they will be desolate, and then the day of the Lord will come upon the whole world and devastate the whole world. I mean, this is, this is the visions that God gave to the prophets. And it's right. Look at what he says. Thorns will come up and fortify towers. This is Isaiah 34, 13. Nestles and thistles in its fortified cities. I mean, just picture in your mind, guys, these palatial dwellings that they had built, these palaces and kingdoms. And then start picturing in your mind thorns and thistles beginning to choke out its beauty and all this wasteland and desolation, this void, this emptiness, this chaos starts just wreaking havoc all over the place. It will be a haunt of jackals, an abode of ostriches. The desert creatures will meet with the wolves. The hairy goat also will cry to its kind. Isn't that interesting? He uses the word kind like in Genesis. Yes, the night monster will settle there and will find herself a resting place. I promised myself not to go into exposition of the night monster, but... I'll never get out of that. He uses the word night monster. The tree, the, tree, the tree snake will make its nest and lay eggs there, and it will hatch and gather them under its protection. Yes, the hawks will be gathered there, every one with its kind. 
Amazing. It's like what he says in chapter 24, that the city of man will become, quote, a city of chaos, tohu, which is the same word that God uses in Genesis 1 when he says the world was formless and void. It was tohu bavohu. So it will come back into a ruinous condition where all that is left is the need for some sort of recreational act. Where do we go from here? Total desolation, total abandonment. The city is helpless. The city is overthrown. Now what? See what I mean by a covenant crisis? Wait a minute. This is the people. This is the chosen people to whom the promises were made. God gave them the promise. We have it. We know what it is. The promise is, is that Israel would be a mighty nation as like the grains of sand on the sea, like the stars in the sky. The, there would be an innumerable posterity that is going to come out of Abraham. And now we are on the very precipice of total destruction such that Israel may not recover. And guess what? Were it not for the grace of God, it would not recover. Why? Look at verse 9. Because unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like under Gomorrah. It's like God is saying, you want to understand the nature of your sin? This is where your sin is taking you. Your sin is taking you to total and utter desolation and, and, and depravity. You will become, isn't it ironic, you will become the very scourge of the earth. That's what Sodom and Gomorrah are. They represent the very worst of man. Right? I mean, the, the, the men in Sodom were called worthless men. They had, this is the worst. And so, what God is giving us in this verse is what I call a ray of hope. Why? Because the picture is so dark, it's so bleak. One of the things that I love about the book of Isaiah is that the book of Isaiah moves like the gospel. First, we need the bad news. We need the sin, the destruction, the judgment, the condemnation. We need the hopelessness, the helplessness. And then, we need the grace. Because without the grace, we go nowhere. And the beauty of Isaiah, brothers and sisters, is that redemption, not retribution, is the ultimate message of the book. You can be careful there, because you could be reading chapter after chapter after chapter of Isaiah where judgment after judgment after judgment is being leveled out such that you would think, well, the message of Isaiah is judgment. It's not judgment. The message of Isaiah is redemption, not judgment. It's grace, and that's how we get to the gospel, is because the true message, the ultimate message, is a message of redemption, not of retribution. I'm not even close to being done right now. So lock in and fasten your seatbelts. There's so much here. It's all about the grace of God at this point. God doesn't act. Israel doesn't survive. In other words, it will not be on the basis of anything that Israel does because it's grace. Deuteronomy 7, 7, you remember? The Lord did not set His love on you. Set His love on you, which is a picture of foreknowledge. Nor choose you, which is a picture of 
election, because you were more in number than the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. And so there is mercy, there is grace. But because the Lord loved you, no explanation needed there. And that's a picture of the sovereignty of God there. And kept the oath which He swore to your fathers. That's a picture of the decree of God. Because God makes an oath, He binds Himself to that oath. This is what I mean by Abraham stands tall, a juggernaut, casting his shadow across all of redemptive history. Thank you, Father Abraham. <laughs> Thank God that, he made a, that God made a covenant with him and that this covenant is in God's mind when he looks upon this sinful nation that deserves nothing but his wrath. God is motivated by eternal love. His sovereignty, His covenant faithfulness, such that what happens here in this text, brothers and sisters, is that Isaiah is giving us a redemptive historical principle. A redemptive historical principle that reminds us of the covenant of grace first revealed in Genesis 3. God has determined to save a people for Himself through faith. And this redemption is of a remnant. Look at that word. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors. That word survivor there becomes congruent with the language of the remnant, the holy seed that will survive The New Testament calls it a remnant. We'll get there in a second. But what does it tell us? Verse 9, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we'd be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Several things come into view here. Number one, this ray of hope is owing to God's own sovereign power. He is the Lord of hosts. Remember? And the Lord of hosts means that He has the power. He has the power to direct Israel's armies, the armies of heaven. And so God, being the Lord of hosts, has the power to defeat His enemies and to deliver His people. And second, God's power is redemptive. We could say God graciously saves the nation from itself. The Lord of hosts is the Lord of salvation. That's the final purpose of redemption, to save a people from themselves for Himself. He saves us from our sins and from the wrath that is incurred by His grace and for His glory. God's grace here, of course, seen from the fact that He does not need to save anyone, and yet He does. It would have been perfectly just for God to just allow Judah, Jerusalem, Israel, north and south. Let them all become like Sodom and Gomorrah. We've seen this before. You remember God tells Moses, out of the way, Moses, I will break forth and consume them all. And in an act of sheer grace, Moses 
is allowed to intercede for the people as a picture, a type of the mediation of Christ, the mediator who comes in and intercedes for the people. The typology is so deep that Moses indeed assumes the messianic role of saying, Lord, let me be cut off for them. What a perfect picture of the gospel. And again, it's only because of grace that God allows Israel to survive one other day. The third thing is that the permanent state of redemption is in keeping with the best of His kingdom and not with the worst of mankind, i.e. Sodom and Gomorrah. This is what, it meant by, what is meant by God saying that He will save the nation from itself. Not that God's judgment is not the final condemnation. But here, in keeping with the prophet's imagery, Israel's sin and apostasy is is cast in the language of the most scandalous people that have ever surfaced on the face of the earth, Sodom and Gomorrah, these cities upon which descended the wrath of God from heaven in the form of fire and brimstone. And at that pride fest that we were at, we just got a little glimpse. I'll tell you what, I'm grateful for common grace. Those officers, bam, 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 bam. If it wasn't for those guys, <laughs> there are a few times where like, I'm looking at Landon like, we're going to make it out of here? <laughs> and thank God for common grace. Those officers were like, get back. Let them preach. <laughs> how long is that going to last? How long is that going to last in our culture? I don't know. I really don't know. And yet, God would allow Israel to get to that place. But that, of course, is not the end of the story. Turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 9. We have no time to do this, but you understand that the book of Isaiah becomes the most crucial book for the Apostle Paul in his formulation of the sovereignty of God and of His electing grace in the most pivotal chapters of the book of Romans on this issue. Chapter 9, 10, 11. What is at the very heart of those chapters? You go back and look at those chapters and look at the cross-references and what you'll find is Isaiah, 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 Isaiah. What, what that tells us is that I'm right. There's a redemptive historical principle here in the book of Isaiah. And the Apostle Paul, knowing that more than anybody, understands that what happened in Isaiah was merely typological prefiguring of the way that God will deliver all His elect children from the four corners of the earth. We're just getting a little glimpse of what God would do on a mass cosmic scale in this band of survivors that came back out of Babylon. Look at this, Romans 9, verse 27, because here is the climax of all this. Uh, Verse 27 says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. And the Lord will execute His word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. What's he quoting there? Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22. What it's telling us, brothers and sisters, is that all along, now careful, careful, 
There's a hermeneutical issue here that everyone here has to understand. I read a commentary this week that kind of scared me. Because commentary that I trust, but the way that he used, the way he phrased it almost allowed for a certain uh, liberal interpretation. That's what it is. I'm just getting this out for the record. And this is what it said. This is what it said. What, What he said was something like this, that Paul saw in Isaiah an occasion for his theology. Okay, I don't have a problem with that per se. But there's more to the story than that. You know what it is? Here it is. Is that the original intent of the book of Isaiah is what Paul is finding in Isaiah, a theology of God's electing grace for all of his people. It's not, in other words, that Paul takes the book of Isaiah, superimposes his New Testament interpretation on the text of the Old Testament, and says, ah, I found a verse that I can use to support my New Testament theology. No! It's what he's saying is, look, Isaiah is teaching my theology. It's the difference, it's a slight of hand difference between liberalism and orthodoxy. It's a slight of hand difference of saying that the authors of the New Testament were really smart the way they used the Old Testament and saying the Old Testament itself, what theologians call the per se reading of Scripture, meaning the original intent, that the Old Testament itself was hardwired, if you want the technical term, inspired by the Spirit of God to teach the things that Paul is now elaborating upon. In other words, Paul is not injecting the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, with a foreign meaning. He's taking his meaning out of the book of Isaiah. Don't you see? He's saying under the inspiration of the Spirit, Isaiah is prophesying of these very things. How do you know for sure? Look at verse 29. And just as Isaiah, and here's the crucial word, foretold, foretold. Priapon is the word that says he forespoke this. He is forth, he is forespeaking this. Unless the Lord of Sabaoth, or Sabaoth, had left to us, and look at the way he interprets it, a posterity. Isn't that interesting? We would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. So what, so what Paul is doing there, he's not playing, you know, loosey-goosey with the Hebrew text because Paul's, what he'll go on to teach in his theology of the root, which is the remnant, is the stump of Isaiah. Look with me, chapter 6 of Isaiah. Chapter 6, Isaiah. You ready for this? Chapter 6 shows us that Paul's utilization of the word posterity or seed for chapter 1, verse 9 of Isaiah is vindicated by Isaiah. He says in 6.13. Yet, there will be a tenth portion in it and again... And it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Watch this. The holy seed, Serah, is 
its stump. So in other words, the imagery of a, think, think of it this way, a desolate wasteland, a forest that has been burnt down, and the only thing that survives is this charred stump in the ground. And what Isaiah is saying is that stump has life in it. There is, you ever seen that when you see a stump like that and there's like a little twig growing out of the side of it? <laughs> That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying is that you may look at a burnt stump in the ground, but I tell you out of that stump will grow a massive oak. In other words, the, the, Isaiah and Paul are talking about the same tree of salvation, the remnant. If you want me to just get all Calvinist on you, it is the elect that he is talking about. It is the elect. Let's just keep reading Romans 9. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, by works. They thought the way to be saved was their merit, their bloodline, their ancestry, their descent, their ethnicity, circumcision, keeping the law, dietary laws. They thought these things were the way that we get right with God. But it's not. It's faith in what all those things represent which is Jesus Christ. And so they did not arrive at it. Look at They stumbled over the stumbling stone just as it is written. And guess where he's quoting here? It is written. Isaiah. Again, Isaiah was a profound Pauline scholar. He says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. That's Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Don't you see? He's stringing along the prophecy of Isaiah, and what he's saying is that everything I'm teaching you right here in the book of Romans, the book of Isaiah has already predicted and foretold and prophesied. He laid it all out for us. It's right there, black and white. It's on the line. Just put it together. And so we kind of get a glimpse of the genius of the Apostle Paul. Isn't this amazing? I've got 20 verses that I can't even touch. So I'm out of time because we're evangelical Christians and we've got to leave in an hour or people get mad. I wrote this down while I was meditating on the sermon. I said, I feel like an astronaut that has been that has been in the spaceship of the New Testament and I have been ejected into the universe of the Old Testament with limited oxygen. It is so vast. So much to explore. So little time. They're both talking about the same tree. Brothers and sisters, the beauty of this book is that Paul and Isaiah speak with one voice of an intertestamental gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's redemptive purpose can withstand all apostasy that, that, that the typo, typological nation committed under the old covenant and still save a remnant, save a people for himself in Jesus Christ. The antichrist crisis is quelled by an act of sheer sovereign grace. Sheer sovereign grace. It is the gospel. What a wonderful, beautiful 
thing. Throughout the book, the prophet takes us from the thick clouds and the darkness of sin and despair to the bright and blazing beauty of the gospel. For Isaiah, the Holy One of Israel, is good. He is good. He is kind and long-suffering, not desiring that any of his sheep would perish, but that all would reach repentance. Isaiah's ray of hope is our ray of hope. His gospel is our gospel. His Savior, our Savior. His God, our God. And that's why Peter can speak of a common salvation. Isaiah, Paul, and us today. Let's pray. Father, I'm reminded of that hymn that says, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I think Isaiah would have said, Amen, and though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Lord, we live in a world that is full of sin and misery. And even in the church, if we're honest, today the church is lukewarm and weighed down with all sorts of various sins, apostasy on every turn, false teaching, false doctrine, false preaching, 